0: these transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look.
1: Greetings, good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and force that knowledge onto you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 226. Did you know there's a small nation about seven and a half miles off the coast of England that has survived for more than 50 years? It has a normal population of around, well, two, but sometimes as many as 50 have lived there. This is the story of an unrecognized country on a World War II anti-aircraft platform off the coast of England. It was created by an ex-pirate radio owner, Today I bring you the astonishing story of the Principality of Sealand.
0: Coffee with coffee, coffee, with, coffee, with coffee Coffee, with Jeff.
1: This is the story of a country known as the Principality of Sealand. It is perhaps the smallest nation on the planet, although it's never been officially recognized by any other nation. It is a land, although land might be the wrong word, that was created by a man named Patrick Roy Bates, known to his friends as Paddy. Paddy began this endeavor with a pirate radio station he called Radio Essex. But before I get into Paddy's story, why don't we talk a little bit about pirate radio? Pirate Radio began in the early 1960s with a young man named Ronan O'Reilly, a London businessman who ran a nightclub. He had heard a jazz musician named Georgie Fame and fell in love with his music. Determined to get Georgie a record deal, he found out that the recording industry in the UK at the time was controlled by two companies, EMI and DECA. While there were a couple small companies... These two, for the most part, had a monopoly on the industry. Not only did they control their own distribution, but their own radio play. After being turned down by both companies, he decided to record Georgie's music himself. But when he took an acetate of the music to Radio Luxembourg and asked if they would play it, the man at the radio station almost fell to the floor laughing. He couldn't believe that anyone could be so ignorant and naive. Again, Ronan found that it was all controlled by EMI and DECA. Next, he went to the BBC, but found out that they only had one show, Top of the Pops, that played modern music. The show was for one hour, once a week, in the late hours. During the daytime, popular music just wasn't played, and for the hour or so when it was, it was all music from EMI and DECA. So the next logical step was to start his own radio station. And the only way to do that was on a ship out in international waters. He named the station after Caroline Kennedy, the youngest daughter of then U.S. President John F. Kennedy. On March 27, 1964, on a ship originally named Federicia, which he renamed M.V. Caroline, Radio Caroline was born off the shores of Felixstowe, Suffolk. It was on the air from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day broadcasting non-stop pop and light music. Radio Caroline broke the BBC's monopoly and finally gave the people what they wanted, non-stop popular music. It also gave exposure to hundreds of artists who would never have been heard otherwise. In fact, The Who credited Pirate Radio so much for their success that their third album, The Who Sells Out, was a tribute to Pirate Radio. Within 10 days, Radio Caroline would have over 7 million listeners. Of course, the British government declared the station illegal, but the truth was it wasn't. They were in international waters out of the British government's jurisdiction. Of course, rather than realizing that this station was just giving the people what they want and maybe they should do the same, The British government and the BBC did their best to try to shut them down. Soon there were many other pirate radio stations floating around in international waters. Anyway, back to Paddy Roy Bates. His son once described him as a huge, huge character, and he once said of himself, I might die young or I might die old, but I will never die of boredom. Paddy was born in London in 1921. At the age of 15, he joined the International Brigade to fight on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War. In the 1940s, he served in the British Army during World War II. He fought in the Italian campaign known as the Battle of Monte Cassino. At one point, he was captured by Greek fascists after his fighter plane crashed, but he managed to escape. At war's end, he was a major who had been injured several times. Leaving the military life behind, he became a fisherman who owned a fleet of fishing boats. Sometime in the early 1960s, following the lead of Radio Caroline, he came up with the idea of starting his own pirate radio station. He just needed the right location. Now, during the Second World War, the United Kingdom's Royal Navy built platforms, forts, in the waters around the UK to deter and report German air raids. One of these was called Knock John Fort. It was 8.5 nautical miles from Essex in the North Sea, and it was four miles out of Britain's three-mile territorial limit. The platform measured 168 by 88 feet. I've heard it described as about the size of a baseball diamond, and it looked a little like an oil rig. It had an upper deck with a central tower unit and a gun deck. The two huge pillars that it stood on, which from the outside seemed to be big chunks of concrete, were actually hollow with seven floors of living space in each one, the bottom floors being beneath the waterline. It was designed for about a 100 men to occupy during the war, but in 1954 the platform was abandoned. So in October of 1965, Roy and his crew arrived on the platform, but there was a problem. Another pirate radio station called Radio City, which was already broadcasting from another one of these platforms, had sent two men to knock-on-john Fort with the idea of setting up another station. Bates and his men quickly removed the other men, taking over the fort and the 3,000 pounds worth of transmitting gear that they had brought with them. But Radio City wasn't going to give up. As Bates was setting up his new radio station, Radio City arrived with ten men and quickly removed Bates and his men. But soon after those reinforcements left, Paddy Bates returned with his own men and recaptured the fort. He took three of Radio City's men hostage. I know Radio City took two of our men, Joan Bates, wife of Paddy, said. They were not hurt. We took three of their men, but they were not threatened. My husband would not do that sort of a thing. He's a businessman. The back-and-forth fighting between the two finally ended with Radio City getting their equipment returned and Roy Bates getting the platform. So using an old United States Air Force radio beacon as a transmitter, Radio Essex, the first 24-hour pirate radio station, began to broadcast, playing the Beatles, Kinks, Rolling Stones, and other pop bands. While his overhead was a bit cheaper than most pirate radio stations, being that radio stations like Caroline broadcasted from ships, money was still tight. But slowly, the station started to get advertisers, and for a while, it looked like things were going well. Roy began thinking about starting a second station called Radio Kent to operate from another platform. But the success was short-lived. The British government quickly took action to take these pirate radio stations off the air. A bill was introduced to suppress the broadcasting from ships, aircrafts, and certain marine structures. One part of the bill was to make it an offense for any British citizen to give any help or to render any services to these unauthorized stations and to prohibit advertising by individuals or organizations subject to British legal jurisdiction. With that, they also changed the territorial limit of what is considered British territory by putting the platform that Radio Essex operated on within its borders. This put the station in violation of Section 1 of the Wireless Telegraph Act of 1949. Radio Caroline described the bill as "...spiteful, unimaginative, and a negation of basic freedoms." It seems to put an outright ban on the enjoyment of 25 million regular listeners to offshore radio without submitting any alternative proposals for satisfying this legitimate demand. We do not regard this fight as over. This tussle will begin when Parliament reassembles. In October of 1966, many pirate radio stations were served summons with a possible maximum 100-pound fine and three-month imprisonment. Roy Bates said... All I can say is I will fight this tooth and nail. At this point, Bates changed the name of his station from Radio Essex to BBMS, Britain's better music station. He also bought a new, more powerful transmitter. In court, when the summons was read, Bates responded by saying, I plead guilty, but I also plead that this court has no jurisdiction over the Nakajan Tower. But after review, the chairman, Mr. Dennis Brown, announced, We are satisfied that we have jurisdiction in this matter. The court clerk turned to Bates and asked, Do you understand that you plead guilty to this offense? Bates took a moment and then answered, I'm afraid then that I cannot plead guilty. But he was found guilty and given a fine of 100 pounds. He quickly filed a motion for an appeal. BBMS kept on broadcasting and plans for a second station continued. Advertisers, however, quickly left due to the court's decision. Soon the station's employees found their paychecks bouncing. It was on Christmas Day 1966 that Britain's Better Music Station, formerly Radio Essex, went off the air for good. In January, Bates lost his appeal. For a short time, Roy teamed up with Radio Caroline in hopes of starting again. The men of Caroline took over the platform, but soon Roy had other thoughts. On Christmas of 1967, while members of Radio Caroline were celebrating the holiday, Roy, his 14-year-old son Michael, and three others climbed the 50-foot platform in the dark. We went out and took it over, Michael later said. We told the DJs, come on, we're taking you ashore. Sometime in 1967, Roy told his wife, while out for dinner with some friends, now you have your very own island. And she responded by saying, it's such a shame it doesn't have a few palm trees, a bit of sunshine, and its own flag. One of his friends had a suggestion. He thought the couple should make the platform their own country. He most likely meant this as a joke, but a few weeks later, Patrick Roy Bates announced Sealand, a new nation with the motto E Mare Libertas, or From the Sea Freedom. The complete name was the Principality of Sealand. It had its own flag, red and black, with a white diagonal stripe down the center, passports, coat of arms, and currency. Their currency was Sealand dollars, coins with Jones Pitcher on each. The Bates family ruled over their new country, though no other country formally recognized the new nation. Now and again, the British government and assorted other groups have tried to take over the platform by force. When they approached, the Bates family used rifles and gasoline bombs to scare them off. They even went so far as to drop cinder blocks onto the boats as they tried to dock, and they pushed their ladders into the sea. There was a time when Roy's son, Michael, fired a 22 caliber pistol at a man who was servicing a nearby buoy. The shots, Michael claimed, were meant only as a warning, but he was eventually brought up on firearm charges. He was charged with illegal possession and discharge of a firearm by the British government. But the courts ruled that his actions happened outside British territory in jurisdiction, making them unpunishable by British law. Electricity on the platform is powered by a wind-powered generator that stands where a big gun once stood. And once a month, a supply boat shows up with necessities, such as tea, whiskey, chocolate, and old newspapers. In 1978, a small revolution happened on the tiny little nation. It began when a man named Alexander Gottfried Achenbach, who was a German diamond dealer, came up with the idea of expanding the Principality of Sealand. He wanted to build a casino, a duty free shop, a bank, post office, hotel, restaurant, and apartments, all of which would stand adjacent to the Sealand platform he was given the title of Sealand's foreign minister and helped the Bates write the nation's constitution. With that, he renounced his German citizenship, demanding that he be recognized as a citizen of Sealand. Local authorities in Germany refused his request. Ackenbach sent the constitution to 150 countries as well as to the United Nations with the request that it be ratified. A court ruled that the platform was not part of the earth's surface, that it was lacking in community life, that it was a minuscule territory that did not constitute a living space, and that it was not viable over the long term. In other words, they refused to recognize the new country. The United Nations is an organization of governments, not gun platforms, a spokesman for the United Nations said. But a bigger problem was the growing tension between Achenbach and the Bates. Achenbach began to get impatient about the lack of progress of his plans. He blamed the Bates for their lack of commitment. It was time he figured to take matters into his own hands. In August of 1978, while Roy and Joan were away, Achenbach and other German and Dutch businessmen, including his lawyer Gernot Putz, stormed the platform with speedboats, personal watercraft, and helicopters. They took Bates' son Michael hostage. The overthrow of the government of the Principality of Sealand had begun. Two days later, Michael was put on a boat that was headed for the Netherlands. Achenbach now claimed that he was the Prime Minister of Sealand. Bates, of course, was furious. He contacted a friend, John Crudson, who worked on some early James Bond movies, to fly a helicopter with a team of men that included both father and son. Just before dawn, they slid down ropes from the copter to the platform. Their sneak attack failed when Michael hit the deck hard and his shotgun fired, almost hitting his father. But now the men on the platform were alerted. The thing was... The gun blast was so loud that the guards on duty thought that the invading force had begun firing. And, I assume, they didn't sign up for actual battles, so they quickly gave up. Soon Roy was back in charge. All the captured men were released, with the exception of Lawyer Poots. Poots, you see, carried a Sealand passport and therefore was charged with treason. He was locked in Sealand's jail for two months. He would be required to make them coffee and wash toilets while he waited. The German embassy responded by writing to the British government saying, The imprisonment of Putz is in a way an act of piracy committed on the high seas, but still in front of British territory by British citizens. They asked for help, but the British government responded by saying it lacked jurisdiction to take any action. A diplomat was eventually sent from West Germany to Sealand to negotiate Putz's release, a move that Michael later described as a de facto recognition of Sealand's sovereignty. The lawyer was eventually released from Sealand after paying a fine of 75,000 Dutch marks, or about $37,500, to the Bates family. The fact that the Bates had negotiated with another country, and the British government said that Sealand wasn't part of the UK, just verified that Sealand was its own country. It's completely independent, Bates said, and it has the recognition of the British government, even though they don't like to admit it. But oddly, in 1980, Roy used Puts as his lawyer in a legal battle. To many, this was proof that the whole overthrow of Sealand had been nothing more than an elaborate charade to gain publicity for Sealand and legal recognition of its sovereignty. There's photographic proof, Michael Bates said, referring to the raid that took back the fortress. It was entirely real. In 1997, fashion designer Johnny Versace was murdered on his front steps of his Miami home. The murderer later committed suicide on a houseboat that he had broken into. On the killer was found a Sealand passport. It was a forged passport. When the FBI looked into it, Michael told them that Sealand had only issued about 300 official passports to people he vetted personally. It turned out there was a whole website that was run by someone who claimed to be Sealand's government in exile. They sold Sealand passports. Later that year, a nightclub owner in Spain was arrested for selling diluted gasoline at his Madrid filling station. He claimed to be Sealand's counsel to Spain and had a diplomatic passport. He said this made him immune to prosecution. The police then raided three Sealand offices in Madrid as well as a shop that made Sealand license plates. The club owner even had designed military uniforms for himself and other so-called officials of Sealand. It seemed that a lot of people were taking advantage of Sealand. Someone had been selling bootleg Sealand passports. There were over 4,000 in use for all types of illegal deals. The Los Angeles Times reported that about 80 people were accused of committing fraud, falsifying documents, and pretending to be foreign dignitaries, all from Sealand. At least eight European countries have been taken by money launderers carrying diplomatic passports from Sealand. The Principality of Sealand was investigated for possible criminal activities. There is nobody more anti-drug than my old man, Michael said, and we've never done any money laundering. I'm not saying we couldn't be used as a tax haven, but we have never done anything like that. Roy Bates told the Independent newspaper... Every country in the world has problems like this. The world is awash with fake passports. I'm just angry that they're faking mine and using them for illegal purposes. Michael was asked if he thought this was part of another attempt to take over Sealand. He said, maybe so. Most likely, though. They just wanted to make money off it as an idea. In the mid-1980s, Roy planned to start his own television station, but the plans were quickly squashed by the British government. They passed a new Territorial Sea Act that extended their territorial waters from 3 to 12 nautical miles. I understand the platform is now in British waters, the Home Office said, and is open to the relevant authorities to take action against television stations they don't deem fit. At one time, Roy tried to explain himself a bit. He said, Listen, old boy, I like a bit of adventure. It's the old British tradition. Maybe Britain's changed, but there's still a lot of us about. We are very vulnerable. We are the smallest state in the world. We are open for criticism. But we are very careful. We don't want to do anything wrong. And no matter what trouble Bates had with the British government, he and his family were always loyal. There is no way we could do anything anti-British, he told a newspaper article in 2000. My family fought for generations. I'm always English no matter what. But I have dual nationality. In 2000, Sealand made a deal with a company called Haven Co. Limited, an internet company. They wanted to set up the first offshore data heaven with the idea to offer companies unregulated services. That deal lasted until 2008. The founder of the Principality of Sealand, Patrick Paddy Roy Bates, eventually retired. He moved to England, letting his son take over control of Sealand. He died quietly at a care home on October 9, 2012. On March 10, 2016, Joan Bates, known as Princess Joan, the self proclaimed ruler of the world's smallest kingdom and wife of Paddy Roy Bates for 63 years, passed away in a nursing home following a long illness. The couple were survived by two children, Michael and Penny. Four grandchildren and six great-grandchildren and two great-great-grandchildren. Prince Michael Bates continues to run Sealand. In 2015, he asserted that Sealand's population is normally like two people. In September 2017, Michael Bates held a dinner to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Sealand. He stated, We're perhaps the most undemanding state in the world. We don't force anybody to worship any god or religion or anything. Maybe that's why we've lasted so long. Hopefully, we'll be around for the next 50 years. A little bit before I go. Okay, now I know I missed another episode. My apologies. But I hope you understand that I'm a one-person operation. I research, write, record, edit, publish, this show all on my own. And, you know, I've got other things going on. I've got a job, I've got a family, I've got a house, I've got pets, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes things just get in the way. And while in the early days, the stories I did had a lot of information available, the longer I go on, the harder it is to find material to these more obscure stories. So... You know, this summer's been a bit of a busy one, so here's the deal. I would rather miss a show than quickly crank out a half-assed podcast. But I think I should be good for a while. I'll also say that if anybody out there wants to do a show, let me know. I'll send you the requirements. Anyway, the part I found strange is that there's very little information about Penny Lope Penny Bates, Roy and Joan's daughter and Michael's sister, I did find one article in the Daily Mail, which showed a very pretty penny holding two guns on the platform with a C behind her. She was quoted as saying, It's pretty normal to us. We don't know anything different. And she said about her life, A bit of a weird upbringing, isn't it? At the time of the article, she was 19, five years older than her brother Michael. The article said that eventually she grew tired of life on the platform and much to her family's dismay, left to live a normal life. Can't blame her for that. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. You know, this show takes money to produce and make available, so if you'd like to help out, you can donate by subscribing to my Patreon. You can find a link to that at the Coffee with Jeff website. That's coffeewithjeff.com for more information. And the least you could do is tell your friends about it, right? You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for, well, any reason. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that you should really join. I'm always looking for story ideas. Links to the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to that on the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme and to all of you who Listen to the show every week thank you so much And of course a special shout out to all Of you who repost this on social media That warms my Heart Thank you, goodbye And stay healthy Coffee
0: With Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and coffee, coffee, coffee with Jeff. Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee and coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.